0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Mandel.
1: Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And I'm Jennifer Waits.
0: Today, we're going to dive into our second review of the decade that was in radio. Of course, we have a slightly different perspective, maybe, than you might read in the newspaper or hear about in the radio press, if you follow that at all. Because, you know, our focus is here on community radio, college radio. Uh, independent and community podcasting and and lots of other issues that surround all of this. That's right. Well, last week on
2: part one of this uh, look back at the decade of radio, Paul, you talked about how uh, this past decade, whatever, we're going to figure out what to call it eventually, uh, saw the largest growth in community radio that ever was, which uh, was definitely a sub-Rosa story. It's not a mainstream accepted fact that community radio, non-commercial radio, grew bigger in the past 10 years than than it ever had before. And that's because of the low-power FM movement that we're big fans of here at Radio Survivor.
1: Yeah, sort of a under underreported story in many places. I feel like I'm constantly evangelizing that tidbit from the past decade to people. And I think a lot of people still don't really realize that incredible growth of, of low-power FM.
0: And another class of low-power FM stations that grew... Are college radio stations, and we really want to dig into this past decade in college radio. Jennifer, we rely on you for that. You watch college radio closer than, I think, just about anybody else out there. You certainly write more about it at radiosurvivor.com, publishing uh, near weekly news on Fridays in your college radio watch uh, feature um, you've had your finger on the pulse. Yes. And, you know what's
2: going on. And one of the things that we've learned on Radio Survivor, because of Jennifer's focus on college radio, is that you might you might out there in radio land not be a big fan of a college radio station. You might be, but it's important for everyone to know who loves radio. That in a lot of ways, in the hundred year history of radio in the United States, uh, college radio has always been there, sometimes leading the way, uh, making radio. And so when we when we care about college radio, we're really um, we're really refocusing on what on how radio is done in the United States. And and college radio is a huge part of that.
1: Yeah. And it's like you mentioned, it's been there since the beginning. And this is, uh, depending on what you think first means, as far as radio <laughs> goes, there were college radio stations broadcasting regularly as early as 1920. Even earlier, if you take into account some of the Sort of more amateur operations that colleges were doing. So yeah, it's it's a lengthy history that deserves attention. And and but we're going to look at the more recent history of the past decade from 2010 to 2019. And you know, it, it's always interesting to look at a whole decade. It the decade for college radio began really dramatically with a lot of bad news with some some pretty high profile radio station license sales, uh, around 2011 is when we were talking a lot about KUSF KTRU and WRVU. These were all college radio stations that had FM licenses in, in big cities and, uh, uh, and, and, and slightly smaller cities, um, that had licenses that became of interest to outside groups and, and were the source of protests and debate. So let's untangle this
0: a little bit, Jennifer. So uh, where, where were these stations located?
1: So KUSF was at university of San Francisco in San Francisco. KTRU was at Rice university in Houston, Texas, and WRVU was at Vanderbilt university in Nashville. And, and around this time, the beginning of the decade, all of these student radio stations lost access to their FM frequencies, and ultimately, these licenses were sold to outside groups. and And things have changed. Some of those some of those student radio stations have morphed into online-only stations. Um, and KTRU eventually got a low-power FM permit, so so they're back on FM. But when these initial when these stations were initially taken off the air. Um, a lot of people banded together in their communities to talk about their displeasure about losing a resource for music and for student broadcasters. And, and so there were legal fights, lots of filings with the FCC, lots of, Press, national press, even. So, Um,
0: so you you said that people, you know, uh, protested over this loss, and and I think it's helpful to kind of give us a better sense for why uh, somebody besides a Rice University or University of San Francisco uh, student would care about this college radio station or community? Why would this erupt in protest? You know, if, if the university shuts down, uh, you know, maybe the drama program, you don't tend to see coverage in the national press over it. What, what made the station significant?
1: Yeah. It's because, you know, they were broadcasting to the broader community and, and these stations were enmeshed in local music scenes. And so, you know, these were the places where people in the community might've learned about new music these are the places where local music venues would do ticket giveaways and um, introduce people to artists who are coming through town. So, you know, all of these stations were very enmeshed in the local music. Culture, but don't they have and, other
0: radio stations? I mean, Houston's an enormous market. San Francisco's right. an enormous market. Uh, most definitely. I mean, I hear uh, giveaways on on a local rock station, an alternative rock station. What is it about these particular stations? These college radio, these stations college radio stations, that stations? That lost their licenses in two thousand. Yeah. What era. makes why why such value was placed on them when you know in any of these these markets there's probably twenty five other stations on the dial.
1: Yeah, because they're serving a different type of audience. And, you know, especially, you know, another trend we've talked a lot about on Radio Survivor is increasing consolidation in on the radio dial, on the commercial side of the dial. So what you hear on the radio generally has gotten less and less diverse. And so in many cases, non-commercial radio stations, college radio stations are places that are playing music that you might not hear on other parts of the dial. So this might be the only, these college radio stations might be the only places in a market where you can hear certain kinds of bands and artists who are more underground, might not have major label deals, um, or even unsigned artists, you know, people who are just starting out or genres that just aren't represented on commercial radio, uh, you know, Uh, more, more obscure underground types of music and unusual formats. So, and I know, uh, Jennifer, I
2: know that KUSF in San Francisco, the college radio station that was uh, staffed by volunteer DJs who were also community members, not necessarily students. And so it was really, yeah, it uh, was a mix. One of the, it was a a mix of students and community members and an important place for um, volunteer DJs to make that contribution to their local music culture. Was that similar yeah. at Rice and in uh, Tennessee?
1: Um, yeah, there, I think there was a mix at all of those stations. Um, as you're mentioning KUSF, I want to point out they're also airing a lot of cultural, local cultural programming on that station, so right. programming in different languages, uh, and so that was also material that didn't really have a place on the dial other than at KUSF, you know, like Ch- Chinese language programming, for example. Um, a wide variety of things. So, so yeah, I mean, since I lived in San Francisco, I was really on the scene for what transpired at KUSF and went to a lot of the protests. They had protests and they attended uh, meetings at city hall. They uh, had protests in front of a commercial radio group that was somehow embroiled in this very complicated deal that led to the license sale. So, there was a lot of activity. And similarly, in in Nashville and Houston, there was a lot of activity. And, and people hired lawyers and dug into all the paperwork behind these deals and uncovered shady shady goings on in some cases. So, that's how the decade began, a bit well, dramatically. Uh, and I think
0: just just to before we move on from this point, Jennifer, I, I want to ask if these stations were so valuable and so needed by the communities, why did they get sold? Can can we sort of sum up like why these three stations? Because each I, I, each a college radio station, each a college radio a, station, yeah, a large broadcast reach. In their in a uh, major metropolitan cities, area yeah. with with a with a huge audience, why why were they sold? What what was it that happening at this beginning of the decade that uh, that caused the universities to sell the licenses?
1: Well, they were largely sold because the universities who held the licenses did not see the value of holding an FM license for a radio station, and and some of that had to do with financial reasons and at the beginning of the decade, um, these schools were able to to get large sums of money for these license sales, which is something that I haven't seen as the decade has continued. You know, by 2019, I was not seeing the same sorts Hmm. of prices for... By prices, like what are we talking about? Millions of of dollars. Millions of dollars. So an
0: easy way to kind of Uh, Put some extra money in the coffers while also at the same time uh, offloading some responsibilities responsibilities and costs.
2: Yeah, because we also know that in the history of radio and college radio, there were other times in in previous decades where college radio stations were were offloaded in a similar manner, but maybe not with the same uh, incentives
1: yeah and and millions like a mil a million dollar plus for some of these deals at the beginning of the decade, right. and then some of the deals i've seen more recently have been you know thousands of dollars i, I mean kind of shocking actually um the low price and 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 its stations not in these same types of markets yeah um but but still i think I think we began the decade um with sort of a sense of alarm that is this a growing trend? Are we going to see more and more of this where, where every college radio station needs to really, you know, make sure that it is doing everything to convince its administrators that it is important to not only the broader community, but also the campus community to keep this license. And, and I was worried that, that, schools would find these sale prices tantalizing and that it would lead to this trend throughout the decade. And, and I don't think it has while we do, there were sales throughout the decade, the drama and the prices that we saw at the beginning of the decade uh, were much different than what we saw at the end of the decade. So that to me is reassuring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I Uh, think
0: these stand out because of that community protest because of the place these stations played in their communities, college radio stations in cities like Houston and San Francisco and Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, one of the things I remember from your reporting, Jennifer, from each of these is it seemed to me that in each case, uh, administrations uh, were saying that they didn't feel as though uh, broadcasting, radio broadcasting had a real place in, in, in education that it didn't seem as though they they didn't in some cases they didn't think students were interested or that uh it didn't it, it was really not a good reason to justify tr- you know the sort of broadcast training that that for a long time uh was one of the justifications for having a broadcast station.
1: Yeah, and it's you know every every school is different as far as how a, mm-hmm. a station is situated and in some cases there is a broadcasting program but in a lot of cases a station is a standalone student activity. But time and time again, when, when a school sells a license, they will they will explain that you know they really need to serve the needs of their students and they don't feel this is serving the needs of their students. And in some ca- cases you'll hear rhetoric about uh, perhaps terrestrial radio not being modern and that they're gonna they're going to transition the station to the more modern Streaming only. And cheaper. Format, At yes. least for colleges. And, and a lot of that is um, is obviously PR speak um, because most of these stations were already streaming. So it's not like they're being modernized by <laughs> having their FM license taken away.
0: But luckily, as you mentioned, this trend didn't quite materialize. I mean, and it's easy to see why uh, at the early part of the 2010, 2010s, that uh, with the loss of these three nationally known stations, you, you could really start to worry. Is this a trend? But but it didn't materialize. I, if if you were to say there was a trend, uh, what would you say, Jennifer?
1: I I keep trying to come up with the right words for kind of the trend of the decade, and um, I feel like college radio was ultimately taking many different forms. And so even though. You know, some of these stations had FM licenses disappear. Many of them continued on in a new form, you know, like an amoeba or uh, mutating. And uh, and and there are students who will even say that there is something liberating about giving up FM sometimes where they don't have to worry about FCC rules. So I, I continue to see growth. So I continue to see new radio stations starting up. Even new terrestrial stations well, that's interesting.
0: I mean, we started off I, I kind of threw it to college radio after we talked briefly about low power f m and I know there was activity amongst college radio and low power f m
1: yeah, quite a bit of activity, which to me was super inspiring, so I saw I counted around a hundred colleges and universities that applied for new low power f m licenses in the twenty thirteen application window. And then more than seventy of those were granted. Seventy,
0: yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a lot. I mean, let's let's not. I mean, I I I I'm going to go out on a limb here, and and I'm not sure I can I can I can justify the number to a T. But seventy college radio stations going on the air in in really what is less than ten years in in about what is actually seven years. I don't know that any seven year period in American history, has seen that kind of college radio activity.
2: And, you know, what's really neat about Low Power FM is I think w- it, it seems really well-suited to a college campus community because, you know, while in a, in a bigger city, Low Power FM can't reach from border to border, uh, in that tighter-packed community of colleges, a Low Power oh, yeah. FM station really has, really has yeah. sufficient reach to, to serve that community.
1: And so for some, for some stations, they might have already been a streaming station, and they saw an opportunity to get an FM license, so they applied for low-power FM. In other cases, like at, at Rice University, you know they had seen their powerful FM license go away, so they applied at KTRU for a new low-power FM license and were awarded one. I find so that they fascinating able, because, yeah, so it's, because they got rid of waves. one license— and then got another. Do you do you have any insight of,
0: of, of how that <laughs> it's sort of interesting. It's sort of like uh, it's like, well, I sold I you know, I sold my, my sixty five Mustang and then I bought another one because I regret well,
1: it. Well, you know, <laughs> like if you're at the students and the participants at the college radio station did not sell the license. You right. know, the school sold it. But how did so. they get
0: the school to back them, right? I mean, they have to get somebody at at, at the university to, right. to give them the okay, to give them the I, approval. You
1: know, there was a lot of um there was a lot of heat on these schools mm-hmm. that sold off these licenses. So I, it's a way for a school to save face to actually back the university and going for the low power FM permit, which, you know, isn't going to cost money for the permit if they yeah. win it. Um, and and they already have the infrastructure of a radio right, station. Right. Well, cynically,
2: um, cynically speaking, it's a win, win, win. They get to sell one station and make a huge profit they get to get a new station that's cheaper and easier to run it they get to make everyone mad and happy at the same time
1: and in a it just in a ps to all of that so when when ktru when they got their new low power fm license uh they they couldn't get the same call letters of ktru but but just recently they were able to acquire those call letters from another station uh, how fun. so by so by the end of the decade uh they were back as ktru lp <laughs>
0: That's wonderful. So, you know, we saw growth, you know, and I want to go on a limb and say we may have seen more growth in terrestrial college radio in this last seven years than in every sort of any prior period of of that sort. And I know, Jennifer, you're going to tell me that I that I can't necessarily justify that claim. But I would say it would be – it would be hard to find that other seven-year period where you've seen that level of expansion.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean maybe in the 1920s, there there were a huge number of college radio stations in the 1920s that ended up yeah. being rather short-lived. In the and first, sort of
0: pre-regulation the, nearly. The yeah. first decade of the history of radio. Yeah.
1: But yeah, not necessarily
0: because, licensed in this sort of way. But no, Oh, I, no. Your, I mean they were licensed. OK. So
1: licensed stations at the very, very beginning – and then you saw increasing competition in the dial. So right. by the end of the 1920s, a lot of those college radio stations had disappeared, which is largely why people don't know much about college radio in the 1920s, because many of those stations existed for you know a year or less. Yeah,
2: in the brief window, and and uh, like yeah, good luck documenting their their tenuous existence. Not not to mention the more like, there was there were no electronic recording technologies available to, to keep those sounds around. I know.
1: Yeah. And that's on my list for 2020 is to really dig into college radio in 1920, which is very difficult to track. Such a fun (laughs) fun thing to do. So yeah, that, you know, we saw this growth in low power FM and, and, and interestingly, you know, there were other things going on with college radio. Some stations were, were picking up HD. So they were able to maybe, Another station might give them space on an HD channel. So that was a way some started transmitting. Over so that the means they decade. could
0: be heard on the HD2 or HD3, uh, mm-hmm. principally in car radios that, that tend to be where you see the most HD radios, although some people have them at home or in their home stereo receivers. So digital only, not something that your average, that, that your analog FM radio, but some listeners can, 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 certainly, can certainly tune in, especially in the car.
1: Yeah. And then you saw streaming radio stations starting up. Uh you saw colleges uh playing around with podcasting, in some cases, you know, like podcasting only type stations. And then and one of the more interesting kind of turns, starting in twenty twelve, iHeartRadio started adding college radio stations. And and it looks to be to around app. to its app. Yeah. And so now there are around 42 college radio stations on iHeartRadio. And when this was initially presented to college radio stations in 2012, there were stations that embraced it right away. Like, this is great. This is a way to get our name out there and to get, you know, streaming capabilities. And and other stations ran, you know, fled. And, 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 said, and why no would that be?
0: Why wouldn't they want to be on iHeartRadio? <laughs>
1: And well, you know, to some, it just seems like such a disconnect to be connected with a, you know, massive commercial radio conglomerate, Not just massive,
0: the largest. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If there so, was any,
2: uh, I feel like if there's any gen Xers around to, uh, to give, to hand down the, the, the uh, the negative right, yeah. perception I, of, well, I, yeah, I was a college had, like, radio advisor
0: at that time. Yeah. And I got the, ask from iheart and i presented it to this to the because students I I, because with. the corporation
2: known as iheart was formerly known as clear channel which has a reputation right. in radio lover circles for uh destroying what was good about radio in the decade uh you know the last half of the 20 yeah, not the last half of the tw- the, the, the in the 90s from <laughs> the, 1996 forward. yeah yes. that uh that radio got real bad because of this, uh, co- this company that owns so many stations. Yeah, and, I,
1: and you I, wouldn't I, think that's where you would go to look for uh, your favorite college radio station. Yeah, so, future, yeah, there's right. a disconnect for a lot of people. Well, <laughs> I, 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 although I wanted
0: to know that I was a college radio advisor right. at, at that time. I received the, the email from iHeart uh, with the offer at, you know, to put the station on with really very, no strings attached. And I presented it without any color with yeah. very much straight out to Smart. Uh, yeah. to the students, uh, you know, who are all ages uh, pretty much 18 to 22 in 2012. So not that long ago. Uh, not Gen Xers, <laughs> by the way. Uh, and uh, I could have – you, you could have heard a pin drop for the moments after I offered it and um, – I, it was quickly sent packing. Oh, so funny. I, I, make, was, I made no. I made no argument. I, for I find or that hard against. to believe. I think.
2: I think your lack of passion might have been a communication to the kids what it was. Uh, uh, really no, all about. They, but,
0: they, they weren't that observant. Sure.
2: But I would add that. Um, if any college, I mean, this is connecting some dots a little bit haphazardly, but if any colleges in the beginning of this decade, this previous decade might've thought, well, what's the point of teaching radio to our students? There is, there's not going to be very many radio jobs for them in the future. Uh, one of the main reasons they might've had that inkling in their minds is the, the work that Clear Channel, you know, soon to be called iHeartRadio had done to the industry of sort of, uh, streamlining things to the point where there were no uh, job openings for students uh, coming out of college. So
1: yeah, it's, it's complex nonetheless. Yeah. So it, it's fascinating, you know, because I've also visited radio stations that were very enthusiastic about being on iHeart. So you heard, you know, a platform a is a platform is a platform is a platform. It reaches a exactly. lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other, other things I noticed in college radio between 2010 and 2019, we saw a disappearance of many Class D stations, which mm. are these really old, this legacy type of license, very low power FM, ten watts, and and, and so I saw more and more of those licenses being turned back to the FCC uh, because it's it's not something that had too much value. In some cases, schools donated their Class Ds to another entity, and stations were able to be you know, another community radio station was able to pop up in its place. um. But those are those are tough stations. Um, If you have a Class D license, you can potentially be bumped off the dial and be moved around the dial. Hmm. So those are the kinds of radio stations where you might notice they've been on different spots on the dial over the years. They don't have a lot of power. Uh, they don't have a lot of power or a lot of power. But they have a lot of
0: historical significance because yeah. – they were created in 1948 by the FCC as part of the creation of the non-commercial band. So the, that, that reserved set of frequencies uh, from 88 to 92 on your dial, which is only non-commercial stations. Uh, Class D stations were created specifically for the purpose that schools and community organizations might be able to get on the air inexpensively.
2: And this would be, this would be a time then that would help create a culture of community radio, In the country, in
0: in educational college radio, almost more so
2: before it was baked in, right? Because you know we live in a world now where where the notion of having community radio is definitely like a given in our culture. We know that it exists,
0: but in 1948, it might have been well, and and public radio didn't exist in 1948. Okay, this idea of a non-commercial station was a very fresh idea to the FCC. Although the idea, of course, had existed since you know the beginning of radio, back when it was more of a uh, anarchy. And these stations uh, existed for 30 years until 1978 Hmm. when the FCC decided to uh, discontinue the service. And they did so at the behest of National Public Radio as well as the National Federation of Community Broadcasters who argued to the FCC that uh, the existence of these stations uh, was taking up space in the dial that might better – go to larger more well-funded stations that could uh, provide better public service essentially for the per dollar that uh, having these extra non-commercial stations in these markets that were so tiny was also diluting the donor base and then they further argued hmm. that the programming was mostly amateurish
2: geez louise
0: <laughs> and and therefore not really a good community service to begin with and the fcc Took them up on this, uh, discontinued the service, and at the time uh, gave the class, existing Class D stations, 10-watt stations, mostly owned by colleges and high schools, um, an option. They could move to a higher-powered station. So that was one option they could have, and many did. Uh, they could stay at Class D at 10 watts where they were, but they would have basically uh, no rights of defense. Meaning if somebody else wanted to put a full power station on the air uh, yeah. that would that would uh, Jennifer
2: said they were low power and they had yeah little that power. would make your that,
0: right. that would make that would that would uh provide interference they had no standing, and if their signal would provide interference they would have to go away How funny and so you know and so a lot of state the reason we didn't have so many then is because a lot of stations were able to rally and raise the money uh to and, and find a way to go up uh in in power and get a different frequency. Again, in 1978, the FM dial was a lot less crowded than it is today. Uh, AM radio was still predominant in 1978. So it was a different situation and it is the very non-existence of the class D license then, which prompted the movement of micro power radio in the 1990s, as we saw consolidation and people were like, we want to have community stations, but we can't get them onto the dial or they 're very expensive to get an existing uh, high powered license, and there 's no good reason why the FCC can 't license a low power station so people were going on the air themselves uh, essentially as pirate radio, but in in, in sort of uh, for the purpose of of really uh, you know, disrupting for the point of of doing civil disobedience, which eventually then, because of groups like the Prometheus Radio Project and other stakeholders were able to convince the FCC to create low power FM in the year 2000. So I I think that's a good thing to to remember that.
1: Yeah, they're really special. All of these (laughs) 10-watt
0: Class D stations are at least older than 1978, right? (laughs) So at this point, you know, they're 40 years older, older. I mean, which is a real significant legacy.
1: And there just aren't that many left. And so those are the kinds of stations that I think are so special and and so yeah it's it's sad to see their numbers continue to dwindle uh, but there are, there are still some class D stations left so they're they're hanging on for dear life um and on on the flip side of that the other decline that we saw was another very rare type of college radio station which is a commercially licensed college radio station and between 2010 and 2019 we saw more commercial college radio stations go away.
0: And so and I guess again they sold their, their their frequencies in most cases, right? They didn't just Yeah, fold they it did. Up. They
1: just found it, you know, increasingly difficult to run. And, you know, a lot of these are AM stations, which can be more and more challenging and more expensive to run. And um
0: And and, and on the FM dial, a commercial license is even more valuable in terms of market value than yeah. than a non commercial
1: license. Right. So so yeah, some of these rare kind of strange college radio stations that most people don't really think about as college, you know, the idea of a commercial college radio station uh, is is very foreign to many people. So uh, I always thought it was interesting to go and, and visit and check out some of these stations and, and there are fewer and fewer of them. What's, what is one that you visited in the
2: decade that perhaps uh, might have been one that, uh, that
1: Well, one no that still exists. Operates. Okay, go, yeah. Oh, one that still exists is WPRB, which is at Princeton University. Right. So they are a commercially licensed station, but they largely operate like a non-commercial station. Right. They you don't were,
2: air commercials. When you when you were explaining your tour and the content of that station and how it's run, it sounds like a like a community-oriented college radio station, like a yeah. like one and we'd then, all be familiar with.
1: And then one that went away, uh W U V A at University of Virginia was was really run like a commercial radio station that you might imagine in your head. So they had different formats over the years. They were country at one point and, you know, something along the lines of hot hits at one point. And they aired commercials and it was, you know, professionally staffed, uh, although the oversight was was by the organization that held the license, which in many cases, these commercial college radio stations, their licenses were not held by the school, but they're held by a separate um, organization, typically a nonprofit, in fact. It's interesting that you bring up the University of Virginia, because I happen to know,
2: because of a podcast interview I did in the previous year, that here is a place that loves radio.
1: Yeah, It's an institution that
2: supports it. Yeah, they still have other frequencies. Wholeheartedly. So it's fascinating that not, and not a only the three, just like multiple, yeah, multiple different college radio student oriented projects. Uh, and, you know, we uh, we'll yeah, link in the operated, show notes to that episode, hopefully.
1: Yeah, no. And they operated very autonomously. So right. there were in completely different parts of the campus run by totally separate groups of people, completely different. So why did they sell that station off? Do we know? Uh, I mean, like I was saying, just increasingly difficult to operate as a commercial radio station and and less student interest as well. So even though students were running it, uh, there was less interest, I think, in running that type of station that, you know, where you're airing commercials and running a very tight format that didn't necessarily have a student audience even. Right. If there is a dinosaur on the earth in radio, it it,
2: it might be like commercial radio uh, formatted <laughs> the way our grandpas did it.
0: No, yeah. Certainly not what we're doing here, yeah. which is at Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio sound. You just heard from Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. I'm Paul Reismandel, and we're taking our second – Look back at the decade that was in radio, the decade of the 2010s, and we're wrapping up a conversation about the decade in college radio from a radio we love very much here at Radio Survivor. Jennifer, uh, I mean, there's there's some other good news that happened for college radio in, in that decade.
1: Yes, yes. Um, in a, some really good news, you know, college radio stations are often – run by students by sort of transient populations and and there are a lot of regulatory things that have to be taken care of especially if you have an FCC licensed station and and so fears of things like FCC fines um are always are always there and and some stations have really been devastated by large fines when they've committed some sort of violation unintentionally
2: sure or and- the fear of a
1: large fine uh
2: we know has been um has been the inciting incident that might have like shut down an yeah. entire college or community station not even the fine itself just the exactly. just the, just threat the, of the threat.
1: specter of yeah. it so starting in 2013 the fcc started to give student run radio stations a break and they decided that they would begin issuing smaller fines for student run stations if they had first time violations Aww. so so things like <laughs> How appropriate and proportional i know so things like having um you know missing paperwork in their public file you know things like that and and so they would set up a a compliance plan or a consent decree okay. and, but if they and, played and an, she- an
2: ice tea song about uh shooting uh, police officers they wouldn't necessarily
0: no i mean i know it it's just sort of a i mean i think that that i mean first of all uh, the fcc is really not issuing uh, exactly, the things <laughs> that have come up
1: yeah, the uh, things that have come up in the past decade for college radio have really been these more administrative type things, yeah. like public file violations, which are not as you know fascinating to people maybe um, um that's an as- important
0: point for everyone who loves radio to understand, right is that while everyone thinks of an f c c fine being for saying a naughty word on the air. Uh, or broadcasting that particular iced tea song. Well, that, that would so never get with. you a fine. That would never get you a fine mm. unless it didn't have, unless if it didn't have indecency. It, it has to be indecent. This is this is really important. Uh, it, you would never get a fine mm. for a song about killing cops without it being indecent. Period. Uh, An indecency. So the EZE
2: E song I'm thinking of that I won't say out. Loud yeah, would the, be the more indecency
0: like it. is sexual or excretory. Yeah. That's it. That's what's in. That's what's in the, in the rules. That's and important. that's what
1: people largely worry about. But what they should really be worrying about are are things like underwriting, making sure that you are not, you know, airing commercials, airing commercials, yeah. Yeah. Um, and make sure that you're filing all of your paperwork. Having your and friend now of a with friend come on files, and give a commercial for there.
0: Yeah, that's ninety five percent of the fines, and that includes yeah. all and radio stations. And public files
1: and public files are online now, so it's easy to find <laughs> these violations and ease. And and so I think a lot of college radio stations would sort of get behind in their paperwork. And so they would have years and years worth yep. of documents not in their file. And so they, they could be faced with some pretty right. massive fines for that. So and, it, and it was just, nice to the, see... Yeah, the last point okay.
0: I wanted to make, Jennifer, I'm sorry, is, is just to, pe- to keep in mind that, one, 95% of fines are administrative and not have nothing to do with what goes out over the air, right. aside from maybe airing a commercial when you shouldn't. Uh, the other part of it is that... For every station, this includes low power FMs and community stations. Uh, the FCC is will negotiate with you <laughs> that you should, you know, it, it's it's not the same as uh, thinking about getting a speeding ticket or something like that. Although plenty of people negotiate their ways out of that too. That it's that it, it is that your best strategy is to is to deal directly and honestly and to negotiate. And and to be clear about what the means of your station are and also be willing to, to – Your intention to follow the develop rules. Develop <laughs> a, a, yeah. a plan for compliance to hide under the table and cover your head or to even worse, ignore uh, any sort of communication about a potential violation. Because it's not a case that you just suddenly get a bill in the mail. Um, The FCC will give you lots and lots of warning that they found a violation and that they want you to communicate with them about it and to figure it out. The fine usually only gets issued after so much time goes by, and especially when there's been no communication or very little communication. We should move on because we're going to run out of time about all the good stuff in college radio, Jennifer. I
1: know. Well, so yeah, the the other thing that happened in the decade was College Radio Day started up and- that began in oh, october nice. 2011 as you know simply a celebratory day for college radio stations to say yay we're here and and over the course of the decade it's expanded into a global celebration so there are participant participants from all over the world they formed a nonprofit eventually and now they're giving away grants to radio stations they've started some annual events like vinylthon where they ask stations to play vinyl on a given day so uh, that's been a nice positive yeah. thing for like a rallying point for stations to uh, you know celebrate college radio yeah. and this and college
2: also- this college radio day and the college radio foundation which now is it's pretty much the deck the first decade of this um this coming together is—it's really an opportunity for for the culture of college radio to um, to to have a cohesion. Since each college radio station is its own island, uh, how often do college radio folks have an opportunity to to collaborate and to coexist? Um, but so here's this national. This
1: yeah, national and there day. is collaboration. They do they do a marathon broadcast on College Radio Day, where you hear uh, broadcasts from stations from all over the world back to back. So. It, yeah, it's a time of, of coming together and stations checking out what other stations are doing. Um, so, so that that's positive. And then I guess the final thing I wanted to talk about was CMJ also had an interesting decade of yeah. having a slow death. The, and, uh, the they, college they, Music journal,
2: um, a huge story for the decade. And we talked about it on the you know, about, uh, Five weeks ago, I think.
0: Yeah, we'll have the uh, In detail. You can find uh, more detail about that in our show notes at com slash podcast. So we're talking about uh, some of the biggest trends and the most important things that happened in radio in the last decade. We, we just finished talking about college radio and what happened there. Uh, Jennifer, there have been some. Other uh, important trends here, and one of which you've been intimately involved in as well, um, and that has to do with the way that uh, we're kind of treating radio's legacy and the history sure. of well, radio.
2: 100 years of radio history is now behind us. It re- we are we have reached the centennial of the history of radio, which is also, I think, an underreported story for our decade. That that was the final decade of 100 years of radio. So now, now that we're heading into the next century of radio, um, there's, there's some important work to be done.
1: Yeah. You know, I think radio preservation was seen as a growing priority between 2010 and 2019. And what do you and- mean by
0: radio preservation? Like we, we, we got radios, uh, encased in glass and plastic and we're,
1: and we're putting them on shelves. Oh yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. You know, the preserving radio programming, the mm-hmm. audio of radio is, is one part of that, you know, make sure that we save, radio broadcasts. And, and you think about maybe some of the recent things that have happened, like consolidation in the radio industry and, and how much programming has probably been lost with ownership changes at, at some of these types of stations. Why would it be lost?
0: Like, like, can you, can you put some, uh, right. you know, put that down in concrete terms? Like where, Yeah, where would because it go? of
1: lack, you know, lack of care, lack of a uh, lack of interest in the history of a radio station. It, if there a radio was, station is sold, a new owner might yeah, not really care about I the early it's, years it's of that station. It's rare for there
2: to be a national, institutional body to preserve radio. It's but been what, a
0: catch-as-catch-can individual I'm preservation. I'm being real concrete here. Like, what do we mean by preserving radio? What what was lost? Like They like, threw the tapes in the garbage. Yeah, yeah I guess that's yeah, what I'm trying to get at. the tapes
1: in the garbage, exactly, or, and, or and the reels in the garbage. and. It's about actual
0: assets, right? I think it's important to kind of point out, right, that that unlike if we talk about film preservation, everyone understands that intuitively, right? Because films were distributed on these big reels of film. And we even, you know, understand, you know, book preservation. But radio's ephemeral, right? Uh, you know, much of the time DJs are sitting there in front of a mic and they're just talking and it goes out over the air. Well, you know, we, we we only have about five minutes to talk
2: about preservation, right? But it goes decade by decade as well. What document exists you know, when we get up to the 70s and 80s, there are different materials that are still around as opposed to like we were saying earlier in today that in the 1920s, there's, there were, there were no, uh, you know, widely available technologies to preserve exactly. Sound.
1: Yeah. The early years you might've had these transcription discs, which were, you know, essentially records that might have uh radio programming. And and then later you might have tapes like reel to reel, uh, and a variety of different tape formats, so yeah and and now we're getting to the point where a lot of these tapes that have existed are are falling apart mm-hmm. they're just dis- they're disintegrating, and so there's a crisis and and preservationists archivists are encouraging people, institutions, libraries to really focus attention on archiving these materials, converting things to digital formats so that right. we can listen to audio from the past in the future because yeah, off the top of my head i think like one of the the biggest preservational
2: challenges is like like the 1980s right there really there was a wide prevalence of of uh of magnetic tape available it was cheaper and easier to record programming in that decade but you still might have a huge challenge to um to hold on to those sounds uh now now that it's been 40 years Uh, since they were recorded, these things are, um, every day there's a storage unit, right? That uh, the person who owned that storage unit and there's tapes inside doesn't pay their bill because they passed away and that storage unit is emptied.
1: Exactly. And there've been, you know, these heroic figures, radio station engineers, collectors have been squirreling away a lot of these materials, which has been amazing. Um, But, you know, in the past decade, what I've been excited about is that the Library of Congress. Their National Recording Preservation Plan was created in 2012, and as part of that, they created the Radio Preservation Task Force in 2014. So with specific attention and and efforts, bringing people together to talk about the need to preserve radio recordings and also make them available to people. To start a national conversation about the need and hopefully gather
2: some resources and also... um, some uh, like institutional uh, knowledge and wherewithal about how to do the work.
1: Yeah, and attach some, and this also lends some credibility if people are looking to do these types of projects. You can point to this national group right. that's working on this, and they've also been reaching out around the world, making it a transnational, making transnational connections. Mm, so. Yeah. It expands beyond the US. One of the
2: one of our favorite stories at Radio Survivor to talk about radio preservation. We've done we've done more than a few episodes on it. And Jennifer, when you said that the national that the radio preservation task force of the Library of Congress was created in twenty fourteen. When when were you invited to become a member?
1: Oh, I guess. Well, I invited myself. Uh, I love truth, it. Be, truth be told, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I noticed some of my pal, my radio pals, were involved, and I was like, "Hey, I want to be part of that." I didn't so know that. that. I love that. Yeah. yeah, so that college radio can be part of the conversation, and and it was, you know, mostly PhD, you know, a- academics with PhDs. So I I talked my way on. So it. that is the story.
0: <laughs> and you know, there's another effort. To preserve what we call radio, what we just learned about, in which the Library of Congress is preserving podcasts. And we learned about it because the Library of Congress dropped us a line and asked us, may we preserve your podcast, Radio Survivor, and may we... Uh, also make it available uh, digitally, make it available to people who uh, are outside the Library of Congress. And we said, of course. And we're going to talk more about that yeah. in, in about a week. Uh, but I want everyone to know that uh, we're very pleased to to be uh, one of the first participants. I'm, I'm grinning. I
1: know. We were all grinning ear to ear, I'm, I'm sure, when we saw that email. <laughs> I'm
2: grinning ear to ear right now because this is uh, – we don't often break news here on Radio yeah. Survivor. That's not our job. But uh, the existence of this project with the Library of Congress to preserve podcasts is uh, uh, breaking news. Although I think other people have been writing about it in the last couple of weeks. But Just Twitter, uh, though, but whatever Twitter. Comes but Radio Survivor on. being invited to be a part of this, so that uh, somewhere there's a there's a shelf with the Radio Survivor on it. We'll find out more. Because uh, we're very curious, It's probably a hard drive yes. with radio Survivor. But there's on a it. shelf. I still believe. I know. I can't
1: wait. Yeah, and we're all hoping that we're in a bunker somewhere too. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, very cool. And we imagine that there's a lot of work to be done. We know that there's a lot of work to be done, and you know the 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 story of this decade. Also, we we don't have time to talk about it. But it's, but podcasts were a large part of this past decade, and um, most of those things are being preserved on a case by case basis by the creators of those podcasts, and if individuals. Are no longer have the resources or, or life uh, goals to, ser- to save that stuff, um, it's gone. It was there and now it's gone. You know, last year's podcast uh, is not necessarily going to be around next year. So the preservation of this material is also very important to, to radio survivors like us. And it's, uh, it's going to be the story of the next decade.
0: And uh, another trend you identified, Jennifer, uh, is radio, but it's video.
1: Yes. Well, YouTube has been a humongous part of the yeah, the, uh, the landscape, the audio landscape. Inescapable. 20-
2: <laughs> the yeah, media landscape, really. Uh, I mean, and the cultural landscape of the massive. decade.
1: And probably the and increa- biggest story of the decade in general, really. Increasingly that's a place where people are consuming audio mm-hmm. and music and a place for music discovery. So it's become more and more popular as a place for people to find out about music and and a portal for music listening. And even though, you know, it's, it's history was a video focused site, but music is now a big part of that. They, they launched the YouTube music streaming service in that decade. And then very recently, in fact, it hasn't quite happened yet, but YouTube is going to be YouTube plays are going to be incorporated into billboard charts beginning right. later this month in January, 2020. So yes, the ascendance of YouTube is an audio and radio story that, that definitely can't be underestimated. Right.
2: It was the, it was the gang, Gangnam style decade where, you know, that, that was the first video to reach a billion and, you know, people probably watched it because of the fun visuals, but that, that pop song really popped because it, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's also the emergence of K-pop is the K-pop decade and you know i love that this in the last decade paul you were talking about uh you know the youtube's uh, uh de- becoming the default platform for a sort of pirate streaming service that i found That's to be right. very amusing it's uh the 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 world of sound on this particular platform is um is vast it's we could spend the next hour talking about podcasts
0: on youtube a lot of people think of youtube as a default place for podcasts especially folks who got to know stuff that has a strong video presence like the joe rogan show but there's a lot of gaming uh podcasts in quote that are that are right you know we we put podcasts on camera we put podcasts in quotes because you cannot uh,
2: you cannot create an RSS feed with a YouTube channel and then download it to your podcasting
0: app. It's it's just sound. And an interesting thing is there's an historical precedent here. sound. Right? I, I don't know. Uh, people may or may not remember back to the 90s. But uh, folks know the name Howard Stern. Uh, shock jock. Well, it all comes back to Howard Stern for it, you eventually. It Paul. does because uh, – and, and this was – you know, there was a video version, a television version That's of right. his show, on E Entertainment Network, on E Entertainment
2: Network, which was really just back c- when cable was the only internet we had.
0: Yeah, kids. but it was it wasn't a television show. Yeah. It was cameras yeah. in the studio, a boiled down, low-fi cameras too. Oh yeah, it was, it was really essentially just like a, just webcam, like a web webcam. Yeah, well, it was like three camera. No, they had, yeah. they had no, switches. but it was still, but they weren't. No, they we're not high def. <laughs> no, and, 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 and the and, and, sound was good because it was broadcast yep. radio sound, and the cameras were uh, they, they were there. In the time since then, ESPN has done this. Yeah. Uh, local like Comcast sports networks, local sports networks have done this. Have uh, put video, uh, basically television cameras into radio studios. Um, well, and even
1: even college radio stations, some of them have webcams where you could just right. watch.
0: I just want to kind of point out this sort of – there's always been this sort of convergence between radio and television and video – um, right. And that YouTube sort well, of accelerated back, the process. Go back to the
2: to the previous century and most of television was just something that was invented on radio, radio first. Radio with pictures.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially radio with pictures. So it's sort of interesting that Benny, that, right. that YouTube becomes itself kind of a radio platform. And as I say all the time, it's ironic because it's far more expensive to stream video yeah. on the internet than it is to stream audio. It's just – but it's just this one happy accident that one of the largest corporations in the world has chosen to subsidize all of us yeah. to become well, video stars but not audio stars and and some
1: of and some of what you see on YouTube with uh with music it, it's just an image of a record player playing a record so like yeah, video isn't even always that important to the audio that you're that you're consuming on YouTube so that. that's kind of funny too it's My- very Sometimes it's secondary. My
2: new favorite channel this this month is uh is just a DJ who's spinning records, you know, essentially doing a DJ set that's basically radio. Um his the themes of his channel, I'll hopefully I'll put a link in the show notes, is uh he'll, he'll he gets his vinyl um thematically from all over the world. So it's like Turkish disco or pop songs from USSR in the eighties. And um it's a great it's great streaming music, uh, with a visual of him. Uh, doing his work in his sunny apartment um I also think one of the stories of the previous decade why YouTube maybe becomes the de facto sound service platform is just because so many other uh, companies came and went and yeah. were n- unable to uh, to maintain their presence culturally you know they might have had three years at the top as the place to get sound but very rarely did they stick around long enough to to keep To keep the sound up. So, I mean, YouTube just sort of um,
0: stayed when they they all went away. It was subsidized. There's no other way to look at it. And eventually Google figured out how to make money and make quite a bit of money from YouTube. But when YouTube acquired it, uh, you know, before the decade began – uh, this last decade, um, where Google it, acquired YouTube, Google acquired it. Yeah, yeah. YouTube. Uh, yeah, Google acquired YouTube. Uh, YouTube wasn't making any money. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was you just know another and, and one probably, of those crazy startups, and, and probably would have had a similar arc right. of of brief amount of of popularity followed by a fade, uh, without Google coming in and deciding wow. that it was going to uh, try and mine. I'm reminded it. now that Amazon also has some sound. You know
2: the another one of the large corporations that can afford to subsidize culture um, and experiment is how Amazon. You know, uh, Amazon has a presence in the world of sound, being audible, and is you know
0: and owning Twitch, yeah. which is sort of uh, another which is a uh, you know a, a live streaming yes. video platform which, which my, gamers,
2: but which my middle school son will will explain to me. Yes, he likes the visuals, but just as often he's in it for the the sound he likes what the streamers are providing in spoken word that's like why he will stay tuned in to a station because of how if it's all just visuals he loses interest but but their their ability to uh, to to discursively uh, converse with their audience you know uh, that's the important part.
0: Yeah, I mean it's amazing if you'd asked us, you know, 20 years ago if uh, a online internet video platform would be such a huge presence in audio and radio, you yeah. never would have guessed it, but but here we are in the year uh 2020. And there, and there were many other things, many other big trends that that if we were to try to cover them would take up the podcast for the next month and a half. Uh but We think it's time to start looking at the present and looking forward. So you can go to radiosurvivor.com to read our series on the biggest trends, the most important trends we see for radio in the last decade, Uh, more things than we're able to talk about here on the show because we want to plunge forward. It was a big decade. It was a big decade because we want to talk about- We didn't really cover podcasts, did we?
2: Because I mean, how can you- We
1: cover podcasts so much. Constantly, right.
2: But it really was the decade of podcasting. And yeah, I mean, I think, what yeah, we were covering,
1: it? we cover we talked about kind of these trends as they were happening. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, but you're right. Podcasting was huge for the decade.
0: Yeah. And I have it on my plate to write about and I'm, but how I'm at writer's block because how do you take a bite out of that apple? Yeah. It's, it's uh, more than one apple. It, it's more than one apple. <laughs> but we will be talking about podcasting next week. Sure. The future of we're, we're going to be talking with uh, someone from the Library of Congress whose job it is right now is to help preserve podcasts. So uh, that's going to be a fascinating and wonderful discussion. So you definitely want to come back uh, next week to hear more about either, that.
2: Either here on these radio airwaves, if that's how you're listening to our voices or as our podcast stream, which is always available for free anywhere where you get your podcasts. You can also listen to us on the website, radiosurvivor.com. But if you if you do enjoy podcasts on an app, be it, Apple's podcasting app or Stitcher. Spotify. Spotify, Overcast. Uh, you can get Radio Survivor for free every week.
0: And we'd love to hear what do you think? What did we miss? What did we get wrong about the decade that was in radio and what was important to the kind of radio that we all love? Drop us a line. Send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And, of course, you can always uh, give us a tweet Talk to us on Facebook. We love to hear from you. We're available there. Just look for Radio Survivor. We're the only ones. We're very easy to find.
2: Yeah, I mean, we did the decade in review, but uh, I think we owe everybody the century in review at some point. (laughs) This really was the century of radio and sound. And uh,
0: well, Jennifer says uh, you're going to do some uh, research about college radio in the 1920s. So we look forward to hearing what you turn up about that. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much uh, for bringing three amazing topics to the table this week. We really appreciate it.
1: Sure. Yeah, always a pleasure.
0: And of course, we really appreciate everyone who takes uh, another hour to spend some time with us. Please keep in mind that we are a listener and reader supported enterprise. You can learn more about that at radiosurvivor.com slash support. Eric, thank you for spending some time with us. It's always a
2: pleasure. Uh, Listeners, thank you for listening. See you next week. Hello Radio Survivor listeners, this is Eric Klein here coming to you at the conclusion of the podcast episode today to let you know that uh, coming right up I'm going to play an excerpt of some of the Patreon-only content that we recorded, Jennifer Waits, Paul Rees-Mendel, and myself recorded uh, for this week's episode. Uh, uh, I let loose with some um, less than... Completely organized material that was in my head. One of my one of the things that I love about podcasting is that sometimes it's an opportunity to get sloppy with the intelligent people that you enjoy talking to. Uh, on the radio, I think it is sometimes more important to uh, have uh, to fully prepare and to have an organized plan about where you're going to go. And it's great to be surprised. It's it's very special to make sure that sometimes you don't know everything that you're going to say in order to make new connections and to have ideas occur to you in the moment and to share them with the listeners. It's what makes radio special. Uh, Writing is more of a planned uh, space for media, and uh, radio is a place where stuff can happen on the fly. Um, But Radio Survivor, we, especially the radio program, the one-hour program, we tend to keep things um, uh, not scripted, but uh, we, we, you know, for today's episode we had a plan. We knew what Jennifer was going to talk about. On today's Patreon uh, content that's coming right up, I brought forward a random idea which allowed Paul and Jennifer to react in real time to my random idea which I'm gonna share with you now so I won't spoil uh, where it came from but it's basically a book that I've been reading that I was enjoying that um, reading that book about the history of Jerry Lee Lewis the artist enrich was enriched by a, a whole bunch of stuff I'd learned from our radio survivor podcast and show about um, how radio history uh, fits into culture in the United States and the 100 years of radio history you know the understanding some really fun things about the 20th century rock and roll music so, you know black and white uh, artists and uh, culture in the baby boomer years all this good stuff um when you, when you look at it through a lens of radio, sort of comes alive in a way that I didn't know, you know 15 years ago when I might have known who Jerry Lee Lewis was. But uh, uh, because of our Radio Survivor thoughts and work that we've been doing every week, more or less, um, I had other ideas and I shared them with Paul and Jennifer and then they had a reaction and we spoke about it for about 35 minutes and I'm going to play about five minutes of it and then uh, stop it and that's going to be the end. When he passed away, uh, this person on Twitter declared their book, Hellfire, the Jerry Lee Lewis story, to be the single greatest work of rock journalism that they'd ever read. That it was both you know, full of hot facts, but also um, extremely well written. And I was able to get it out from the library. It costs $126 to get a hardcover copy of the book. It's extremely out of print. But I, I, so I only had it for uh, three weeks and I didn't get to finish it. But the reason I wanted to talk about it with you, Paul and Jennifer, is that um, Jerry Lee Lewis, what was fascinating about the, that part of the book was learning about Southern musical culture and how it was connected to radio and the exciting uh, connections between um, the industry of pressing vinyl records and recording music and its relationship with uh, radio stations in the community as well as live radio. And I've been writing down as I read the book before I had to return it to the library, I was both writing down all the recording artists that he was inspired by, but also the radio stations where he would go to sing. Even as a 15 year old performer, uh, at one point in his life, the uh, local supermarket paid for him to have a half an hour of airtime at the, um, at this small Louisiana radio station, K Nat. No, wouldn't have been K, it would have been W. W-N-A-T, because it was in Natchez, Louisiana. And just this I, you know, this idea of this 15-year-old kid getting some airtime on a local radio station as a as a commercial experiment paid for by the local grocery store owner um, was really exciting. They also talked about in the book a lot about um, Jerry Lee Lewis's relationship with influences in the music world and how those influencers were both um, people that he was lucky enough to see in mostly like black spaces, you know, think places I would call juke joints, but I think they might've had a different name for them in the South um, places where black musicians would play and where white people were, were rare, but apparently teenage Jerry Lee Lewis would hang out to listen as much as he was allowed to. And as well as, um, the presence of radio in his life when it was really a very early medium and the importance of a uh, a couple of national programs that uh, the grand old opry was one of them but then there was a uh, there was like a a similar show and i wish i brought my notes with me today to talk about it there was a similar show that also did country western music uh for a national audience on the radio where um, apparently where hank williams was heard a lot and that had a huge influence on jerry lee lewis's um it sounds upbringing.
1: like it sounds like such a great companion read to the Country Music Ken Burns series which yeah. I just started watching this week. I have to watch that. And the first episode it has so much radio as part of the storyline and 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 how radio stations were yeah transmitting you know these different local musics um into the communities especially in the south. So yeah, yeah you're, you're piquing my interest about the book. And, yeah, it's and, a great book. Um,
2: and then I mean, I'm sure they have it at the San Francisco Public Library unless someone stole the copy because it's worth $126 right now on eBay. Well, there's
1: always interlibrary loans. So. Yeah,
2: um, I picked up a copy on eBay that looks like it was published uh, in the last decade in the U.K., and so it was considerably less uh, for this piece of used culture. Um, but yeah, it's we, we talked on Radio Survivor this year with um, – uh, our guest, you know, who taught us about border blasters and the creation of the country music genre, how it, it couldn't exist without uh, without those funky well, radio it would, stations. Not that it
0: wouldn't exist, right. but that you know, it, it was pivotal in the proliferation and shaping of it as a genre. Yeah, not could not exist.
2: It it did exist along with yes the this proliferation border of blaster it, yeah. sound, as well as um you know just what really excited me is this uh interrelationship between record companies the pressing of vinyl which was such a
1: right yeah like i mean like when we talked to Kyle Barnett about the kind of the twin development of radio and the recording industry and yeah the that relationship that symbiotic relationship yeah. and how
2: how vinyl was bigger than radio at the beginning and then radio got bigger than vinyl and it was always sort of a um an unhappy Marriage, but eventually, by the time you know, by our time, it had really solidified that you know, radio had one job to do and, and the record industry had another job to do, and they, they worked pretty well together. I
0: don't, and I'll, I'll, I'll push a little bit on that yeah. summation because I'm not sure it's ever, it's ever been a happy marriage. Sure, I think it's been a marriage punctuated by moments of ecstasy. I think like the 70s, right? In the 70s and 80s, it pretty much had solidified for a while. Like this is yeah, what and, and I don't
1: think Kyle would have said it was a happy marriage yeah. either. Um, yeah,
0: I don't even know. I mean, it, no, I, I think that that it was. There's always been a push pull, right? And yeah, and the push pull, you know, has been that you know, radio wants to the commercial radio industry, yeah. let's say, because I, I don't think we want to lump in all radio has always wanted to maintain its autonomy and power and its profits, and the record industry wanting to retain its own. And that
1: exactly follow meant, the money
0: the relationship then is always defined by money. So again,
2: thank you so much for listening. What you just heard was a excerpt of, uh, today's Patreon only content. And if you are interested in supporting radio survivor and getting access to this Patreon only content, go check us out. Uh, you can find out more at radio slash support or find radio survivors page on Patreon. Again, a uh, dollar a month, Gets you access to all this content, audio content that we provide. It also gives you another channel to communicate with us. Uh, we always answer emails, but you know, if you are a Patreon supporter, we'll uh, will also be able to. You can get our ear over there. You can send us messages as well as um, earlier in the year, over the summer, we offered for people who were able available to give us five dollars a month in support. We uh, we created a zine and we printed. Uh, about a hundred copies of that zine, and sent them out to supporters all over the country and Canada and the world. I think we sent one uh, to Ireland. I think we sent one to Brazil. And um, we'll definitely be doing that sort of thing again. So if you're if you can spare the five dollars a month for Radio Survivor, you could look forward to some other offers that will be um, coming along m- future zines. But for right now, uh, right away, you get a the um, the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping us uh, do this work, spend more time doing the work, um, put more focus into the work weekly, as well as some of this extra content where some people like me get to think more off the top of our head and create, uh, new ideas that, um, well, it's like the, the raw material, right? It's, uh, it's not necessarily, uh, an episode in and of itself, but it's more like, um, us, uh, having um sharing and thinking together out loud so thank you so much for listening and see you next week